in uh, a series. We are actually uh, we're just a, it's a very short series, so this will be the last week. Um, we kicked it off last week, and it was it was intentional. Uh, this series, Justice for All, and it's very different from the Genesis series we did in terms of that Old Testament overview, and very different from our Easter series uh, called Victory in Jesus, which we're super excited to talk about uh, the victory that we experience in our relationship with Christ. Um, this series is specifically about kind of current events, current conversation, um, and current challenges that we face as followers of Christ uh, as we seek to engage our culture, as we seek to engage even other Christians, around cultural things that affect uh, all of us, and especially around this idea of justice. I cannot recap last week, but I have to state a few things just to help you understand the foundation that we built. If any of this, you know, if you weren't here last week and anything kind of rubs you wrong because I didn't get to explain it fully, you're going to have to go back last week and see the foundation we laid as we talk about uh, how we today are going to talk about some very specific uh, issues, all right? I love this quote. This is from a, uh, a British statesman in the 1800s uh, called Justice, Justice is Truth and Action. Um, it's a beautiful quote, and I loved it because it was kind of focusing the two words that we were going to be focused on, which was justice and its, and its significance when it comes to truth. I read a little bit to you last week about a book that was written in 1988 um, called, uh, I don't actually have it written in my notes called, but it's, I think it's Whose Justice, Which Rationale. Um, you can look that up online. Uh, but it talked about the historical approach to justice that we have got to remember that a lot of what we're kind of doing today, a lot of man's kind of versions of how we solve this, all have roots in our historical approaches, especially in the Enlightenment period, and especially as a move to the kind of the many, many streams of the postmodern. And so what I did last week, just I'm going to do it very quickly, is sort of show you the sliding scale, all right, of where sort of most of us fall in terms of our natural, I call it the reaction approach, you know, to justice. I say reaction, meaning that before you think about it, pray about it, or ask God what he thinks about it, um, you know, you see that post on Facebook and you're just kind of like, ha, you know, you, you want to react, right? So there's an approach that you have that's, that's there, that's an automatic reaction. And I want you to, to just know that, just kind of have an understanding of where that comes from. This is all from the Enlightenment period uh, into the postmodern period. You have the libertarian, the liberal, the utilitarian, and postmodern. Libertarian is all about freedom. It's all about individual rights and freedom and, and small government and um, sort of those rights, not being entitlements, but those rights being things that you can rise to uh, individually. The liberal um, is all about fairness. It's a just society promotes fairness, right, versus just freedom. And uh, their, their rights kind of become more entitlements. Uh, it's much more about what's fair socially and economically across the board. I'll give you a quick example. You know, about 2019, uh, I was telling my wife this not that long ago, Monopoly decided to create a, a, new, a new monopoly called Miss Monopoly. Have you guys ever heard of this? So Miss Monopoly came out, and it wanted to highlight the in injustice of, of what was not being fair in terms of women's wages. And so women who played Miss Monopoly got an extra $40 when they passed go, right? I mean, that was sort of the, that's sort of the solution, if you will. That's a real thing. You need to go look up Miss Monopoly. But that's, that was kind of like, again, when our approach is fairness, we're doing all that we can to sort of work through what is fair for the most uh, number of people. Uh, utilitarian, which justice is about happiness. And that has to go along with the idea that whatever brings happiness 
has everything. There's no morals in all in any of these particular uh, approaches. Whatever brings happiness is something for the majority of people. Is something we need to consider. And so we've seen our culture change, you know, over decades and decades as to what our culture views as as bringing us happiness or the majority of us happiness. And we'll want to respond accordingly because that's the kind of reactionary approach to justice and to injustice. The last in the postmodern is just the idea of power, right? Postmodern is a, a just society subverts the power of dominant groups in favor of the oppressed. And I read this last week just to give you the right wording. Uh, unequal outcomes in wealth, well-being, opportunity are never due to individual actions, but they're always due to un- unjust social structures and systems. Therefore, we do not address the problems. Uh, sorry. Therefore, we address problem systems. We do not address problem people. The more marginalized and powerless you are seen in that uh, reaction, the, more, the, the higher moral ground you have and the true knowledge you have. Those with privilege uh, have no right to complain or advise in this particular approach. All right? Now, this is one of those that's probably a little bit more of the, what we see some arguments today. But I, I just want you to hear this. This isn't to give you any fuel for... Oh, that sounds more like me. That sounds more like them. You know, you're thinking about you're thinking about that family member, right? Or that coworker that just rubs you the wrong way every time. You know they're going to bring it up. You know, you saw the news, the same news they did, and you know they're going to bring it up, and you know they're going to say something, and it just drives you nuts. This isn't to fuel you in this. This is to help you understand that everything that's happening today. Everybody has an approach that's all rooted in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of our approach as humans to justice, our approach to, to try to help and, and, and work through the injustice in our society. So what does God have to say about it? That's our human approach. What does God have to say? Well, God told us, this is in Micah 6, 8. He says, he's shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does he want, require of you, not just want for you, but require of you. It's to, read the words out loud, two words, act justly and to what? Love mercy and to do what? Walk humbly. And so I gave you these illustrations that we'll use again uh, today. Here's our can of justice, right? And here is our humility and here is our uh, mercy, Right? These, I really do believe, this is my, my opinion, but I really do believe just from what I can read, we really were not intended to attack the justice conversation as Christians, as followers of Jesus, without at the same time, which is why he said these are requirements of us, to also love mercy, right? Not just consider mercy, but love mercy, to walk humbly, meaning remember who you are, remember who you are in terms of God. Like, this is a big deal. We're, we're supposed to be engaging all of this, not just the, the justice, you know, just trying to, to achieve justice. And so when it came to those, that idea of justice is truth in action, we, we basically said this last week, this was the bottom line, that if you want to seek justice for all, not just small changes, but justice for all, then we have to seek absolute truth. There has to be a universal absolute applies to everyone for generations to generations, historic to the future, as to what justice means, as to how we can have real justice for everyone, right? Not happiness, not fairness, not power, not freedom. Okay, those are our reactionary approaches. We're talking about actual 
biblical justice for everyone. How do we get that in terms of seeking absolute truth? Well, this is what we read last week in Psalms. Teach me your ways, O Lord, that I may live according to your truth. This is a phrase that I adopted several years ago to try to just help people understand where the breakdown comes when it comes to sort of modern day Christians in terms of how we, why we respond the way we do and why we act the way we do and why we get into the arguments that we get into, even with each other. And it has everything to do with these words. Teach me your ways, O Lord. Show me that I may live according to your truth. Most of us don't get there. We have an intellectual appreciation for his truth. We might even have a little bit of knowledge of his truth. But when it comes to how we actually live and act and make decisions, it's all driven around my truth and your truth. Go ahead and go to the next one. My truth and your truth. And those things are often at odds, right? My truth versus your truth. And my truth... Okay, and it goes back to what I said last week. We all, this culture, we're fighting for what is true probably now more than ever. But we all claim to have special knowledge that the other people don't have, right? We all claim to sort of, we all sanction different truth sources, right? My truth is my truth, and I, and I have articles that prove that it's true. And your truth, well, those articles are stupid, Right? That blogger doesn't know what he's talking about, right? That news channel is horrible. They're deceiving you. It's part of the multimedia, you know, it's part of the mass media. Like, we all have this, like, insider knowledge that no one else has, and so our truth versus your truth has everything to do with what we have chosen to be sanctioned truth sources. So now it's not even us looking at the same facts and having a different opinion about the same facts. Now we come at each other emboldened by truth. Yeah, but those are your facts. These are my facts. My facts are better, and your facts are dumb. Everybody with me? So it's getting worse. It's not getting better when it comes to this idea of this my truth versus your truth. My truth is a stew, if you will, of several things. My feelings. If I feel it's right, it must be true. If I feel it's wrong, it must be false. It has everything to do with how we feel about it. Popular opinion, again, how many, how many articles and you know, things can I find to sort of, you know, ramp up my opinion, give me ammo for my opinion and fuel for my opinion to make me feel like it's the most popular or at least reasonable. And then there is reason, okay? There's reason, there's science and reason that are a part of our truth process, but it's not the largest part. It's, it's the third for a reason, right? And I know there's lots of people, listen, there's lots of people that I, I know, fellow believers, that all really want to believe the best in people and we assume that reason, at some point, reason is going to win the day. Reason's going reason's to step in and not let things get too far. I don't think so, okay? I really don't. I believe reason is third for a reason because it's the last thing we consider. Or it's the thing that just sort of that third leg of the, of the stool, if you will, that sort of gives us that, that foundation of boldness to be like, well, it's the only way I see it. It's the only way I can understand it. I can't understand at all how you're understanding, but I, this is, this, you know, my feelings and this, this is how I understand it. So last week, the challenge is we can be my truth Christians or his truth disciples, right? That's the challenge. 
as we engage in these conversations, we can be my truth Christians, okay, which means we're just kind of arguing our feelings, the popular opinion that we connect with most, our reaction to freedom, happiness, fairness, and power. You know, that, that's, that's there. And the reason, the approach we have to justice. We can do that and slap a little Jesus on it and put a little bumper sticker on it. And we, can, we can do that and really be satisfied that we are actually, we are actually representing the body of Christ. Or we can be his truth disciples, which means that we, we start with the word of God. We, we begin, our foundation is his truth. Lord, teach me your ways so I can be following your truth. Regardless of what your truth says, this is my life. This is what I want to devote myself to. So how do we engage in current justice conversations as being his truth disciples? Okay. So we're going we're gonna to look at a couple big big conversations that people are having today. But I want to start it with a, I would say a small conversation. It's not a small conversation. But the way I approach it, again, from his truth, um, it's going to be small in terms of how I address it, because it's not going to give you any answers that you want. By the way, most of the morning is not going to give you any answers that you actually want, right? My, my goal in life is to frustrate you the more you come and the more you leave, especially in current things, right? That's my goal. Just want you to hear it loudly from me. Actually, my goal is to, is to cause you to, to stop with the reaction that you have and to stop maybe trying to stir that stew of your truth, and I want you to just pause in your life before you engage in these conversations and maybe, just maybe, take a different approach. Maybe, just maybe, have an approach that would see justice for all if we could just start with his truth. May not solve anything. It may not be the thing for you that solves this conversation or this issue. You may still have an opinion about it, which is fine. But I want you to be more concerned about what he says about things and what his truth means for you as we act justly, as we love mercy, as we walk humbly with God. I'll give you a quick example immigration. You know, it's just a little thing, right? Little thing. And here's one that's really, I say it's kind of easy, because what you're going to notice today, especially about some of the bigger issues that we talk about, some of the things that get a little bit more muddy, all right, this one's a little bit more clear from the standpoint of um, there is nothing in Scripture that tells America what to do. Did you know that? There's actually no command to our country that tells us how we, as a country, as an organized society, as a d democracy, how what we're supposed to do. No, God's commands are about personal engagement and obedience, right? Not governmental systems or procedures. They're, they're not. God's commands are always going to be about the personal engagement and obedience of the followers of Christ followers of God, not some sort of governmental path and plan for, for countries to, 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 to sort of take their marching orders from and, and procedures for them to have. Now, they can influence them, yes. They can influence them. They have for years. Our Constitution has been influenced greatly, but it's still driven in terms of what God says as personal commands and obedience, personal engagement and obedience. Let me give you a quick, quick few verses. 
Okay? Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Ensure justice for those who are being crushed. You speak up for the poor. You're, sorry, yes, speak up for the poor and the helpless and see that they get justice. That is a personal charge. That is a personal command to those who follow Christ, to those who are living in wisdom. That's Proverbs. Keep going. To the people of God. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God. The Father means you're going to care for the orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the whole world corrupt you. You want to know what religion is? You want to know what actual definition means? It's caring for the orphans, caring for the widows, and not letting the world corrupt you in terms of the teachings of Christ, in terms of your faith. Keep going. Oh, this is Jesus giving a parable. In terms, of, in terms of a picture of the kingdom of God. He says, I was hungry. Uh, this was a king speaking to uh, his people. He says, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger. You invited me into your home. Keep going. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. And I was in prison and you visited me. And then it goes on to say, okay, God, when did we do that? And they respond to the king. When, when did we actually do that? And he goes on and says, the king will say that. I tell you the truth, whenever you did it for the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me, personal. Whenever you personally were doing it, you were doing it to me. So here, just hear me say this. You and I can have a civil conversation and discourse about immigration laws in our country. We can. And we do not have to agree. Everybody with me? Just Let's just nod our heads together as if that's true, okay? We can have a civil discourse and conversation about whether or not you're going to argue for open borders or closed borders or medium borders. I don't know what the in-between is, but the medium borders or the partially open or the, you know, most people feel like it's too strict or it could be less strict. I don't know. We can have those conversations. We're all citizens, right? We're all, we're all, we're all part of this in terms of our country, but what God wants to know is when's the last time you went to love life and marched and prayed and gave voice to the voiceless in abortion? You. Not, not America. You. Who are the orphans and widows that you are caring for? You. You with me? Who are you feeding? Who's thirsty and you're giving them a drink? Who are the strangers that you're inviting into your home? Who are you visiting that's imprisoned? I'm not saying that that there's one or the other. I'm saying that Scripture, His Word, to be His truth disciples, you're always going to have to start with the personal command, with the personal engagement, and the obedience of what He's asking us to do before we even can get to acting justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly, because that's a part of our obedience to God. Is everybody with me? Yeah. So I didn't, get, I didn't give you anything on immigration that you wanted to know. That's my goal, right? We can have a conversation about it. I'm, I'm a legal you know, resident of this country. I have lots of opinions about safe borders and about things like that. I do. But you'll never hear me preach on what I think our country should do. I'm going to continue to preach on who are you feeding? Who are you loving? Who, who are you giving drink to? Who are you clothing? Who are you speaking up for? 
Oh, it tells us to, to get involved with justice, but it's, it's command is to you and me. And that's starting with His Word. That's starting with His truth. I want to talk about two big things, okay? And this is going to be the, the majority, lion's share of our time, and dive a little bit deeper into how we begin these conversations as we start with His truth, and then as we engage in this our truth, my truth, your truth, approaches to justice. I want to talk about these two words, equality and equity. Okay, they actually mean two different things. Sometimes you'll hear people use them. They may not be using them properly. Uh, I may say it today because they sound very similar. I may say it wrong today, so I apologize in advance. But that's a, that's a little bit of an issue, and they're extraordinarily broad terms, right? They're so big, and they can apply to just about anything, right? They can apply to so many different things in terms of equality and in terms of equity. But I am going to choose today to talk about specifically how it's how, we're, how people are using it right now, okay? I'm going to talk about those issues, how we're using it right now. Now, Chris and I were talking about this week. He sent me this picture, and we were just talking about, you know, sometimes people don't get the difference in how they use the phrase, right? And this was a great image. This was a great, uh, a great uh, way of explaining the difference of, of what this family uh, received equally, right? They each had one box equally, but, you know, given all the same thing, um, but only dad and, you know, middle brother can enjoy the game, right? So they start looking at it and say, well, if we have three boxes, equity, the idea, the healthiest version, if you will, of equity is the idea that, well, with those same three boxes, the middle brother can still see the game, the dad can still see the game, and the little brother can see the game, right? Everybody gets to enjoy the game. Now, there's lots, again, there's lots of different ways to use this, but that's, there has to be a healthy understanding of, of, of what equity means when it comes to individual needs, when it comes to individual issues, whether it's individual in terms of individual or just individual in terms of uh, portions of our society. That's how we're using the phrase equity now. But there, there needs to be a healthy understanding of the difference in terms of equality and equity. Doesn't mean they, they, doesn't even mean they're separate from one another. I'll give you a quick example of Martin Luther King Jr., and one of his letters he wrote from the Alabama prison, it's phenomenal. But this is, this is just kind of the big picture. Now, right now, modern, okay, today, um, the word equity, okay, in terms of the issues of equity and inequity, right now they seem to be centered on racial discrimination and socioeconomic class. Okay, that's when you hear right now the, the discourse and the conversations about equity and being more equitable and finding an you know having equity in our society, it's around these two things. Okay, social uh, racial discrimination and social uh, socioeconomic classes, right? That there's a minority of people that this affects more. There's people of color um, that this is worse for. That there's, we need to tax this class in order to help across the board. We need to uh, look at school districts differently in order to uh, better prepare and support equitably the people in this district or this class or this minority in order to solve it. So this, this is what begins to feed our truth, okay? We're going we to begin to feed our truth, and I'm going to break our truth down into what I've seen as basically the two approaches um, 
two, I would say, general approaches to trying to work through the injustices of inequity um, in our last hundred years, 60 to 80 primarily, but last, you say the last century, okay? There's been lots of things that people have worked towards in order to try to bring justice and solve the injustice of inequity. Now, I want you to understand that for the most part, inequity comes as a result of sin and human nature, okay? Sin and human nature in terms of humans involved in social systems is one of the reasons inequity happens, okay? So that doesn't mean anything. That's not promoting socialism to acknowledge that. That's what it is. People choose systems that benefit themselves, and, and, and man's sin will always come in and sometimes cause, again, injustice for others, maybe not even intentionally, or inequity for others, but that's part of the problem with man's approach. So our truth comes around the idea that race and class, I'm sorry, let me go back. This is the two approaches. I would call this the traditional approach, okay, traditional approach. Equity in opportunity and support without prejudice. This is sort of the big picture goal of what I would call the traditional approach. It means it's been around a lot longer. It's sort of the traditional goal that race and class shouldn't matter. And whoever has needs should find a way and have a way to get those needs met. And I want you to hear this, that there were a lot of systems that were created originally, okay, original intent, around working through the inequity and the injustice of it. Welfare is a system that was created for that. Social assistance, social security, disability laws that we currently have now, okay? scholarships and grants for higher education. All of these things originated and came about as an original way to try to solve this inequity problem, in a way in try to, to try to help people who needed help. These weren't bad things. Now, again, you, we can have a whole other conversation about how they're used now and what's wrong with the systems, and, and I get it. But I want you to hear, this is a traditional view, that there was a desire to see equity, okay? Equity, when it came to the opportunities and support given, without prejudice, meaning with equality, equal rights, right? And that was the example that I just couldn't help it. That's really where Martin Luther King Jr., uh, and I had a great conversation with one of my, my, friend, my, one of my other brothers in, of color that as a pastor, and I said, you know, give me what your take is on this. And he agreed. His exact words were that, that Martin Luther King Jr. seemed to have the, the biblical approach that equality, equal rights, civil rights, would produce equity, naturally, if it was rooted in biblical principles. That the idea of having this equality with one another, meaning no prejudice, right? No discrimination to class or race would actually produce. And if you read the letter from the jail in Alabama, it's, it's in there, clearly. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. did not preach a message to, to sort of demonize white privilege, in order to try to help, you know, black power. And listen, both of those things were still around back then, right? They were. Black power was a big deal. But there was not this sort of power movement in his message to sort of bring about equal rights and civil rights for many African-American and people of color. His constant message was the equal rights will have 
a result of equity. Now, perfect? No, not at all. Are there tons of flaws with that approach? Yes, because it's a man-made approach. It's a traditional man-made approach. The more modern approach is equity in results and outcomes with prejudice. Equity in results and outcomes with prejudice, because some deserve it and some do not, right? Outcomes and results. There's not enough people of color on boards of Fortune 500 companies, so we have to solve that. We have to have right, proper representation in arts and music. Um, they're, they're Google's going through a whole thing right now with too many, you know, too many whites and Asians that are coders. There's not enough people of color and non-whites that are, that are a part of that process. And, and, and meritocracy is out the window when it comes to, right now, the, the music is a real big deal in terms of independent musicians and record labels wanting to have the same streaming time online. And, you know, why is there, why is there seem to be this disparaging injustice and and that we're not going to really see justice. A big one that we talk about is we're not going to see justice until reparations are actually made. That there will, there will be no justice until reparations are made. This is our truth in terms of this approach. And so many, many, many people are having these arguments, having these conversations that I believe come from one of those two places, whether it's freedom, happiness, fairness, or power, that they're kind of leaning to a traditional approach that, listen, I want equity. I want it to be without prejudice. I want it to be, um, you know, there with opportunity and support for the people who need it. You know, they're the ones who say, you know, not everyone should have received a stimulus check. And then there are those who are going to have these kind of arguments and they're going to be coming at it from a standpoint of, no, equity actually has everything to do with outcomes and results. And with prejudice means that some people deserve it more than others. So we hyper-focus on this group, or we hyper-focus on this minority, or we hyper-focus on this race or class to accomplish those results or to accomplish those outcomes. And I'm, I'm just telling you, both of those approaches are flawed. Will they produce change? Yes. I told you that last week. Like, this, the man-centered approach to things will see some change, but it will not be justice for all. That only comes when we focus on his truth and we begin with his work. And so I'll, I'll share very quickly um, a, a kind of where we are. And I want to give you three universal truths about equity that I see in Scripture. Okay, This is my way of kind of going through a lot of Scripture with you and having you look up half of it on your own. Okay, Because I can't go through all of it in the time that I have. Three universal truths about equity. What we see in Scripture that are universally true is that all are personally responsible. All people are personally responsible for what they do, what they say, and their actions, right? Whatever you do and say, you're going to do it to the Lord. You're going to do it in, in thanksgiving for Him. We're all personally accountable, all right? And it goes on in Romans to say that each one of us is, given a, is going to give a personal account to God, okay? A personal account to God for what you did, what you didn't do, what happened, what didn't happen. You're going to be personally accountable, you're going to be personally, all are personally invited, right? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's, there's no discrimination about class or race or anything else like that that is going to affect the kingdom of God, that's going to affect the equity in terms of who gets to be a part of what God wants to do. So we see these universal truths of equity in Scripture, 
So red, yellow, black, and white, there's no, there should be no systems or in, that intentionally marginalize groups or people or discriminate based on class. Or, or that we, we know that is unjust. But it does matter where we start the conversation. And so I'm going to read a few passages just to give you some understanding that Scripture doesn't really... Scripture's not going to be a loaded weapon for you to go solve your... You know, to, to fuel your justice approach. Because you're going to see equality, and you're going to see equity in Scripture, but it's going to have a lot to do with your personal relationship with Him, and it's going to focus and be built on these, these universal truths. Here's one, Matthew 25. I'm going to go ahead and read from mine, so if you can flip through the screen, but it says, again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. He called together the servants, and he entrusted money uh, to them while he was gone. To one he gave five bags of silver, and to one he gave two bags to another, and one bag of silver to the last. He divided it in proportion to their abilities. And then he left on this trip. Now I'll fill in the gap because this particular parable, it doesn't awfully seem all that equitable, but this particular parable he gives it to them. Um, they all go out, except for the one. They all go out and, and double their, their investment and double what was given to them. Except for the one that had one, he went and buried it in the ground. And the, the king, the master, comes back and praises the two who were given different things, but responsible and accountable, praises them for what they did, and he curses the one who hid it in the ground. He curses them. And then the lesson that Jesus pulls out to teach is this in verse 29. To those who use well what they're given, even more will be given, and they will have in abundance. But for those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. So this doesn't really help us, doesn't support us in our reaction or our approaches sometimes to the current conversation of justice, because God doesn't seem, in terms of the kingdom of God, seem to be that concerned in this moment to be describing some sort of formula that helps everybody get the same outcome, helps everybody get the same uh, uh, results. Now, they get the same treatment, and that's something you'll see in Scripture, but they don't necessarily have the guaranteed same outcomes. They don't, that doesn't work that way. Except sometimes you do see it. Here's a great passage. I'll read this off the TV. In case you haven't heard this, this is another parable about the kingdom of heaven. It's a landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. And he agreed to pay the normal day's wage and he sent them out to work. At nine o'clock in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace. He saw some people standing and doing nothing. So he hired them, telling them they should He'll pay them whatever would be right at the end of the day. And then he went to work in the vineyard, and at noon, at noon again and at 3 o'clock, he did the same thing. Just kept going out and hiring people and hiring people and hiring people. At 5 o'clock in the afternoon, he was in town again, saw more people standing around. He asked them, why haven't you been working today? And they replied, well, but no one's hired us. And Leonard told him, well, go out and join the others in my vineyard. And that evening, he told the foreman to call the workers to come in to pay them. He began with the last workers first. When those hired at 5 o'clock were paid, each of them received a full day's wage. And when those hired first came to get their pay, they assumed they would receive more. Capitalist pigs, right? But they too were paid a day's wage. When they received their pay, they protested the owner. Those people worked one hour. 
Yeah, you pay them as much as you paid us who worked all day in the scorching heat. That doesn't seem fair. That's not making us very happy. And he answered one of them, friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay these, the last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my own money? Should you be jealous that I am kind to others? Okay, now understand, this is not a parable about how to spend money, right? I threw that little capital pig in because that's sometimes how we feel. Even in the stories, people get jealous for the wrong reasons. But this is also not a parable to push your socialist agenda. Okay, this is not a parable to push justice of the happiness for the most or to the fairness of, of everyone, you know, fairness to everyone. That's not what this parable is about. This parable is about the kingdom of heaven. This parable is about salvation. And there was going to be equity, equal treatment to all. What does that mean? And again, you have, to, you have to get yourself into this a little bit more in order to feel the weight of it. It means that the same eternity with Jesus, the same eternity with Jesus was given to Billy Graham, who served for 85, 86 plus years as a follower of Jesus. The same eternity with heaven was given to him that was given to the thief on the cross who in the last moment said, Jesus, would you remember me? Is everybody with me? That's the equity that we find. And we see it lived out in the expression of the church. This is an Acts. All the believers met together in one place. They shared everything that they had. They sold their property and the possessions and they shared the money. Read the words out loud. Yeah, they, sh they shared all that with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and they shared their meals with great joy and generosity. I mean, this is, a this is to me the most beautiful picture of equity that we see in Scripture because it wasn't forced. It wasn't wealth dis distribution. It wasn't taxing you know, the rich to pay the poor. It wasn't any of these things. But again, some of our natural human responses is we can solve it. We can solve the justice. We can give justice. This was all done out of joy and generosity because of their life in Christ. And, and, and equal treatment meant that whoever had the need, their needs would be met. So, so here, this is what happens. I mean, when we're just wanting justice, we just, we just want justice. Let's solve it. You know, those filthy rich people, we'll tax them just a little bit more, okay? That, there's so many more people that have need. We have so many solutions for equity. Well, if we just did this, if we just had more representation, if we could just solve this, this is all man's solution to try to fix it. But it doesn't come really with any mercy because we don't love mercy. We all secretly, we don't tell anybody, we all secretly love when people get what they deserve. Am I all right? Oh, don't tell me I'm the only one. I know that's you. We don't love mercy. We don't love seeing people get get what they don't deserve. And we don't understand the humility of the fact that when it comes to the scriptural ideal of equity is that sometimes we're the ones who are in need. Sometimes we are the ones that we're going to be thankful for the equal treatment. You know, I can tell my wife and I, you know, we, we at the time, we, we left in a season, probably making the most money we'd, we'd ever made. We were both working and 
We left a season with lost jobs and lost dreams, feeling very hopeless for several months where we were on social assistance. You know, we were the, we were the ones getting checks from, from neighbors and friends and family members for 50 bucks a year and 100 bucks a year because they knew the need was strong. And we've had seasons like that in our life, which is the only way that God keeps us humble. So that when I engage in the conversation about equity, I'm not going to write it off as something that I've never had to deal with because I have. And I'm not going to sit there and just look at man's solutions and say, you know, that'd be the, that's probably the easiest thing to do to solve it for the most number of people. No, I really want, I really want justice for all. And it's going to require followers of Jesus, it's going to require followers of his truth to live in such a way that they are stepping into justice, but they love mercy, not just what people deserve, and they, and they walk in humility because they remember who they are, and they themselves are counted to be a part of this community. They're counted to be a part of that process. Let me go quickly to equality. Right now, equality is discussed primarily around gender equality and the LGBTQ, okay? This is just right now. Again, these two phrases apply to everybody and apply to a lot of different things. But right now, our, our current country's conversations, equality has everything to do right now with the, uh, the I think it's even called the Equality Act, the, uh, the executive order and what's going to be going through Congress and the Senate and working through this, this, uh, the rights of transgender people and, and gender equality and how that looks for our country. And we argue our truth, right? Our truth all day long. Go ahead, our truth. Well, there are only two biological sexes. People should be allowed to choose their sex, regardless of what they were assigned with at birth. Well, God made me this way. And God doesn't make mistakes. But I thought it was nurture, not, not nature. We have all the studies to show that it's nurture, not nature. Yeah, but I have science and studies that show it's nature, not nurture. With hormone blockers and corrective surgery, a person can actually align themselves with who they feel like they are on the inside and on the outside. Yeah, but it's sin. No, you can't call it sin. It's not wrong. Is everybody with me? This, this is the, 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 the discourse currently around equality. Should biological females be allowed to, to participate in men's sports and vice versa? Should they have, you know, the, beyond just their preferred pronouns on social media, like how do we continue to engage in this discourse when all we're going to do is take our truth, what we feel about it to be true, the most popular opinions that support our beliefs, and our reason for it. Because this is dividing the church. This is dividing Christians. Not just the Christians in the world. It's dividing Christians. So I want to go really quickly to his truth. This is going to be some, some I would say, impartial things that we see in Scripture. Okay? In terms of equality. Here's the impartial, three impartial truths. Go to the next slide. Men and women were created in his image, right? We see that in Genesis. We just went over this several weeks ago. 
made in his image, made male and female. God created them equal in worth and value, maybe different in role and function, but equal in worth and value. We see that. It's impartial truth. Men and women were both cursed by sin. Again, different curses, but both cursed by sin. It goes on to say that when Adam's sin and Adam's curse brought this curse of sin to the whole world and to everybody afterwards, men and women are equally redeemed by Jesus, right? The wages of sin is death, The gift of God is eternal life. It goes on to say in Romans that uh, we all fall short of the glory God, of glorious God's glorious standard, yet God makes us right through Jesus, right? This This is the redemption, and he frees us from the penalty of our sins. We were equally redeemed through Jesus Christ. And then one of my favorite passages in Galatians talks specifically about the idea of identity because that's a big part of the gender conversation, gender... um, uh, fluidity or gen, you know, gender equality is the idea of identity because that's a big part of who they are. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, but we are all one in Jesus Christ. And so when we're talking with Christians, it's important to remember this, that, that, that Jesus, that Paul seemed to identify the same as Jesus did in terms of um, you're all going to be one under the Spirit of God, and Paul goes on to call out things. It's not your culture that you were born into. It's not your race, okay? It's not your socioeconomic status or class, slave or free, right? It's, it's not these things that will label you or identify you or complete you. It is being one in Christ, and so with Christians over the last decade, many Christian authors, bloggers, and influencers have tried to figure out a way to, to work around and to try to, you know, kind of excuse out all of the references to homosexuality and, you know, sexual immorality that has anything to do with sexuality in terms of transgender and things like that. They've tried to kind of find ways to say, well, that didn't really happen, and that's not what that word means, and sometime in the 40s that word got changed to homosexual, and that's what it you know. There's all sorts of those things. And, and to be honest, like I, I'm not, I'm not going to have that conversation today. I've, I've really never left Romans 1. Romans 1 is the only thing that I've ever needed in terms of having a conversation with someone about what, what God says in terms of how we were made, what his intentions were, and what, he, and what sin is. All right, so here's this portion of Romans 1. God shows his anger from heaven against the sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, meaning they don't want the truth. They know the truth about God because he made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Though everything God made, he can clearly see his indivisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. Goes on to say, they traded the truth of God for a lie, so they worshiped and served the things of God created instead of the Creator Himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. Right? A little short, quick message by Paul. Amen. And this is why God abandoned them to their oh, sorry, this is why God abandoned them to shameful desires, their sinful nature. Even women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged with sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned for lust. For each other. And men did shameful things with other men, and as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. It goes on to say their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip just starts giving through, through this list. 
They backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, boastful. They invented new ways of sinning, which just goes to show you this is not supposed to be a comprehensive list. This is basically saying that for as long as men exist and we try to figure out ways to do life outside of God's plan, we're just going to keep inventing ways to, to sin. That's what it means. And they disobeyed their parents. I love that that was thrown in at the end. Children, everybody hear me? They refused to understand, break their promises, heartless, and they had no mercy. And they know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die. Yet they did them anyway. You're worse yet. They encouraged others to do them too. Worse yet, they were encouraging others to engage in that behavior, encouraging others in that sin. So go back to it. I'm, I stopped years ago trying to explain away all the things that were listed as sin that I didn't like. Okay, there's plenty of things he lists in there that I didn't like. Join the club, right? He didn't invite us to the meeting, right, to decide what sin was going to be. He is the only judge of sin, therefore he gets to decide what is sin. And, I, you know, you can hate that, but I don't, I don't really care. He doesn't actually care. That's just the way it works. And you, have, you don't even have to agree with me on the outcomes of what I'm talking about today, but you're going to have to do business with what the Word of God says if you want to be a follower of Christ. If you want to be a His truth follower, you've got to do business with what the Word of God says. And you can wrestle with it. That's, that's why I wrestle with it. Now, Christians, now this is, I'm going to take the last five minutes and just help you understand this. Christians, this is dividing the church. This is dividing the church. Because there's a good number of church Christians who continue to feel like for some reason that this particular sin is so much worse than all the other sins. And we are never given that in Scripture. The only thing that we are told in Scripture Paul addresses it this way. He even said it in Romans, but I'm going to read it really clearly so we can all see it together. He goes on to say that sexual sin, okay, period, pornography, you know, adultery, you know, sex before, any sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman, period. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. The reason it stands apart is because it's the worst thing for you. Okay, understand? You with me? It's the worst thing for you is the reason it stands apart. And yet, Christians have engaged in this conversation with no mercy, no humility, and a, and a can of justice that gives them the right to condemn and judge and ostracize and expel others because they think that's what Jesus does and they think that's what God does, and therefore they have the right to. That's, that's, that's what's at stake. However, we are challenged to continue to act justly, which means I, have to, I will never not call sin a sin. I will never not talk about these scriptures and how they're supposed to be talked about. I will never not do that. That's as clear as day. But I'm always going to function in a place where, number one, I'm, I have to have humility because we were all born in sin. We're all born dead as a spirit. We're all born dead in our sin, and we we're all born broken because of our sinful nature. It doesn't show up the same way in you as it does me, but it doesn't mean it's not the same. You all with me? So it doesn't give, I have to remember that to be humble. 
I have to, I have to truly love mercy. That regardless of what I think someone deserves, and regardless of the fact that sin condemns them, I'm not saying that the sin doesn't condemn them, but it also condemns me. And I'm so thankful for the mercy of Jesus. I'm so thankful for the grace of the cross. And Christians, this is one of those tensions. It's one of those tensions that's going to continue to divide the church over this issue for our future generations, for our future kids, okay? And it's going to be one of those things that many, many people are going to just, they're not going to be able to handle the tension of holding to the truth of the Word of God and yet loving their neighbor as themselves because our neighbors are the people who don't look like us, think like us, or agree with us. And to live out these three things in such a way that we have to live in the tension of what is going to be cultural condemnation and cultural, you know, uh, uh, judgment. But that's like, that's, we're not going to want it. So many people will simply just affirm, because that's what, that's what people tell us, is that, well, if you love us, you have to affirm us. Well, Jesus never did that. Jesus never affirmed anyone in their sin in order to show them that he loved them. And that's our example, so why in the world would we do that? And when it comes to our self-righteous condemnation of those who struggle with same sex, who struggle with gender dysphoria, who struggle with understanding who they are and their identity in Christ, for those who struggle with it, we, have, we are not here to condemn them. That's not our job. We do what Jesus does. We, we bring light and hope and the gospel, and we bring... And we bring Salvation. That's what we, the feet of salvation, that's what we do. And here's what I don't get. People love Romans 1. Oh, go to Romans 1. Show them how sinful everybody is. But they don't keep reading. Because in Romans 2, think of it less of, a, of another book and more of a continuing thought. You may think you can condemn such people. But you are, what's those three words? No. <laughs> and you have no excuse. He's talking to the people of God who know better. You have no excuse. Keep going. When you say they're wicked and should be punished, remember that justice can, and can, you're condemning yourself for who judge others, or sorry, for, who, for you who judge others, do these very same things. It doesn't mean it's the same act. It means it's the same act of sin. Keep going. We know that God in his justice will punish anyone who does such things. Since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think you would avoid God's judgment when you do the same things? Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? Oh, Christians, if we only believed that it was true, that the kindness and patience and love of God through us is what actually might turn people from their sins. That that's our role, not to condemn, not to ostracize, not to oppress, not to make fun of, 
not to be compassionless about. And I hope that any time I've ever addressed this with you, I hope you hear my heart. I have extraordinary compassion for anybody who struggles in this area, whether it's gender dysphoria in terms of their gender, or whether it's uh, any of the LGBTQ and same-sex attraction. Like, I have huge compassion for parents and for kids and for anyone who's struggling with this. Because I want to be humble about my own brokenness. I want to be merciful about what I don't. I don't want to see them get what they deserve. I want to see them receive everything that Jesus has promised them. Even though I have no choice when they look at me and say, well, what do you think is wrong? It's a sin. That's how God talks about it. I can't talk about it any other way than that. Well, you don't love me then. I'm very sorry you feel that way. I'm going to spend my life trying to help you understand that I do. That I really, really do. And when I engage in this conversation and I worry about the future of the church and the future of Christians who are just going to leave the church because they don't want to deal with the cultural oppression and condemnation of those who want to criminalize, who want to call Christians hate groups. I mean, just, just a couple days ago, the you know, Oral Roberts University, people wanted to kick them out of the Sweet 16 of the NCAA tournament because of their doctrine of beliefs. Cancel ORU was a huge, I mean, it was a huge deal. So this isn't something that I'm fearful is going to happen. This is the stuff that is happening. And for you and for our kids and for the future church, it's going to be a dividing line of his truth disciples versus my truth followers. It doesn't really matter what it is you're discussing. These are your three go-tos. It doesn't matter what cultural thing you're engaging in justice. Guys, act justly, personally. Personal engagement and obedience. That's you and me. That's what we're called to do. Love mercy. Love it. Rejoice in mercy. And walk humbly with God. I'm just telling you, you... It's his kindness and his tolerance and his patience that leads people back to him. That's how I want us to engage in just justice conversations. That's how I want to see you act online. That's how I want this church to be known, recognized, and approached from others who are questioning and struggling with things. This will always be a safe place for them. Let's pray together. Thank you, Jesus, for this. The, the, as I think about just, justice and mercy and humility, I can't help but think about you, how you were the example of all of those things for us, for our lives. God, I pray that for myself and for everyone here today that we would, we would just for a moment, before we react to that article, before we react to that social media post, before we react in that conversation with family and friends of people who think differently and who approach justice differently, before we react with our truth, God, I pray sincerely that you will move us to a place to be your truth disciples. That we may not be able to solve the world's problems in a way that we agree about the outcomes, but God, we can start with your word and we can start with the personal engagement and obedience you've called us to. We can begin to talk about justice for everyone in a way that aligns with your word. And through kindness and through patience, 
And through mercy and through justice and through humility, we would see people turn from sin and engage you. We thank you for, again, your word to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.